Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thank you, you happy warriors, for being part of the show, and thank you especially for all the great promotion you've all been doing. Uh, At least I don't know about all of you, but a whole lot of you have been continuing to tell others about the show, and it is that to which I attribute the growth in our download numbers and our listening numbers, which thrills me. It really does. It fills me with absolute delight, and knowing that you are listening gives me all the energy and all the enthusiasm and all the encouragement that I need to keep these shows coming to you on a regular weekly basis. Now, I have a public warning to issue, and this applies only to those of you with gasoline-driven cars that uh, have more than four cylinders. Now, you know that I, your rabbi, wouldn't dream of being seen in a car with only four cylinders. Six is my absolute minimum. My normal and customary comfort level is maintained in an eight-cylinder car, and what I really enjoy is a 12-cylinder car. But uh, four cylinders, look, I, I won't even get into an Uber that comes if it's only a four-cylinder car. It's just not going to happen. Uh, you understand that the cylinders are really important, and uh, they are um, a, a measure not only of the masculinity of the driver, but they're also a measure of the power of the car. And the restraining of that power is a huge and valuable character quality. In other words, power that is possessed but not wielded is awesome. It is really wonderful and exciting. Uh, You find that in parents, for instance, right? Parents have power, but parents that exert that power in a gentle and, uh, and not obvious way Uh, are are loved. I mean, that is a wonderful thing, as opposed to parents who wield their power in a tyrannical kind of a way. And uh, this is also true in politics. It's true in business. Uh, When people with little power pretend to wield great power, now that is obnoxious. But people with a lot of power who don't exert it, now that is terrific. And so driving a 12-cylinder car within the speed limit or even just just eight miles an hour above the speed limit, now that is wonderful because you know full well that if you wanted to, you could put your right foot down and eight or 12 cylinders respond with a throaty burst of enthusiastic power and it's wonderful. That's just one of the delights of a high-performance car. But um, a four-cylinder car, I mean, really, come on. I know that today they add turbochargers to four-cylinders, and they extract huge amounts of power out of merely four-cylinders. 
but those four cylinders are screaming away in protest and that turbocharger is spinning at 10,000 rpm desperately trying to cram just a little bit more oxygen into those teensy weensy little four cylinders and um, talking about politicians who exert power puny and impotent politicians exerting vast amounts of power well that has a lot to do with the worldwide response to the coronavirus hysterical yes exaggerated yes panic driven absolutely and it really is like somebody driving a small capacity 1.6 liter four-cylinder car and using their horns and pressing down on their right foot uh, it's pathetic and uh, from time to time i may be a little uh, vocal and perhaps even a little bit just just microscopically excessive in my feelings towards those politicians so as you can imagine i felt truly chastened to receive the following letter from a politician whom i not only know but i like and respect i'm not going to tell you what state she's from um because i don't want to reveal any uh, ID identification information. But um, here is her letter to me that I just received. Uh, here we go. You are my rabbi, and I am a Christian. We have met several times. However, your comments about politicians is not becoming, she means are not becoming, and plays into a negative stereotype, especially at a time when these people, including myself, are working hard to make tough decisions to save people's lives. When our founding fathers wrote the Constitution, the roles of local government were not as extensive as the churches and houses of worship performed many of the tasks. I will not make value judgments about that, but as things are now, there are many topics, issues, and a more litigious community that makes having experienced people in office imperative. Please help support the dedicated people serving in office and honor the expertise and knowledge they have acquired to help serve. Thanks. And then follows her name. And uh, I immediately did write back to her. Dear so-and-so, thank you for taking, the, for taking uh, the time to write to me, particularly during what I can only assume is an extraordinarily hectic period for anybody at your level of government. Um, of course, I remember meeting you on a number of occasions during, and I, I, I don't want to give more identification information, um, and I have always been impressed with your courage and your commitment to those eternal values that you and I both hold sacred. Uh, from time to time, I do keep up with your battles, and I've noticed that you have not wavered in any way since those earlier days. You are right about my frequently uncomplimentary comments about politicians in general, and I accept your criticism. I apologize and intend reading your considerate letter on a future show when I shall undertake to express my concerns about people like, and then I quote some names of other politicians from her state, um, but I will try to do so with more nuance and specificity. With appreciation for your service and best wishes for continued success, sincerely. So that was my response to her, because, yes, uh, in general, I do think the political response has been shameful and, um, and very, very unhelpful.
I also got another letter from um, a friend, David, in Australia, living in the Leap area of Australia. That's way that's north of Brisbane, way up in the in the northeast area. And uh, and he wrote a beautiful letter, um, which I will read you a little bit of, I think, because I certainly enjoyed it. And uh, I want to tell you now, he wrote it. He said, what he did was he sent it to me by email, but he, he didn't write the email. What he did was he sent a fo- uh, he sent a photograph of a handwritten letter. And the reason he, di- he didn't say this, but the reason he did it is because he has paid attention to my frequent references to how much more valuable a handwritten letter is than an email. So he, he, captured, <laughs> he captured everything very, very beautifully. Dear Rabbi Daniel and Mrs. Susan Lappin, just a quick note to say good day. That's an Australian term. Uh, to stay connected and to tell you both how much I appreciate the value uh, how much I value your work brings into my life. I'm sorry, just every now and then I have trouble with a handwritten word. Anyway, continues, through your teachings on the podcast, wisdom in the musings, books, and especially the ancient Jewish wisdom show on TCT television, I'm coming to grips with how the world really works. I would also like to humbly submit that aided by your teachings and with a lot of help from God, I am becoming a better husband, a better father, a better son, and a better brother, uncle, and friend. My relationships with my employer has just improved because they are now the number one um, customer of this business professional. Okay, now, if you're a regular listener, you know how often I've spoken about the fact that even if you're an employer, excuse me, even if you are an employee, you should really think of yourself as being in business for yourself with your customer, with your number, with your employer being your number one customer. So David really uh, captured that. And I'm, I'm so absolutely, I'm really moved by your words, David. I'll continue your letter. My finances are improving as my relationship with money has changed. I make money. I do not take money. By no means least, my relationship with God has taken on a new meaning as I consider him in all I do. He has always been there, that I'm sure of, and now I'm, I um, invite him into my life. This happy warrior would like to request, if I may, that you continue to hold off on the warm butter Again, if you're a regular listener, you know what he's talking about. I sometimes remind you that uh, that the one thing I don't do on the show is massage you with warm butter. I never say things that I think you'll like just because I think you'll like them. I hope you'll like what I say, but I certainly do not massage you with warm butter. So that's what David is referring to. Um, uh, so I'm hoping you continue to hold off on the warm butter, that you continue to muse and again, some of you will know what he's referring to there, that you continue to deliver ancient Jewish wisdom because I am a frequent flyer, a loyal listener, a devotee, and definitely not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life. Thank you and God bless you. Regards, David. And he just mentions that they've recently moved to uh, the uh, area 
in Australia known as the Leap. I really would like to visit Australia. That's it's one place I haven't yet been, and I, I've got a feeling that unlike you know most of the places I go to, I go and do a speech, a few speeches. When I was in Ghana, you know, it was a week, but I have a feeling that a visit to Australia needs a whole lot more time than merely a week. Now. Uh, I said that uh, I want to give you a, a warning, and that is that those of you driving cars with more than four cylinders, so if you've got a V8 or you've got a V6 or you've got a flat six or whatever you're driving, this warning is for you. And that is any time now the governor or the government of your location is going to issue a decree that says something like all of you citizens of this locality driving cars with more than four cylinders, you will be restricted to driving no more than 60 miles per week. This is a public health issue. That's right. It's a public health issue. And uh, the reason that I am so confident that you'll be hearing about that soon, and I'm giving you an advance heads up, is because I am extremely concerned. I am one worried rabbi right now, not because of the coronavirus. No, I am worried because of the public health considerations. What do I mean by that? Well, let me take you to one of the uh, finest medical schools in the country, and uh, this would be the Johns Hopkins um, uh, Hospital Medical School, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland, and they have a school of public health, and this is called the Bloomberg School of Public Health. That's right. The man who was recently a failed Democratic presidential candidate nominee in the Democratic primaries, uh, Mr. Bloomberg, was also previously the mayor of New York. And he utilized the power of the office of the mayor of New York to make sure that convenience stores cannot sell you a soda of more than a certain size. Hello? Really? What's that all about? Well, it's a question of public health. And so my concern, the reason I am genuinely bothered by this, is because public health is an arena that has no limits. For instance, there is nothing to stop government in whatever country you live in deciding that Climate change is a public health issue. After all, you might live in Miami or in uh, uh, parts of anywhere in the world where your city is going to be underwater soon as the sea level rises due to climate change. Now, again, if you are a regular listener to the show, you will know... Um, how skeptical I am, to say the very least, of all of that nonsense. And in previous shows, 
you can go back if you're interested and see that I have laid out in considerable detail just why the whole climate change scenario is a hoax and why the claim that 97% of scientists believe it's all absolute nonsense at the very least. More honestly described, it's all lies. It's all fake. It's all a hoax. For what reason, you might you might ask, and again, that is something that I've discussed at length in the past, but uh, in general, it has to do with the desire to grow government and to allow government to maintain and uh, achieve even greater control over every corner of your life. It's one of the reasons that the United States of America uh, was created by the founders who were absolutely terrified of the dangers of big government. And so much of the Constitution is structured in order to avoid government becoming too big. Uh, One can read the Federalist Papers, and one should read the Federalist Papers. And again, not only if you're American, no matter where you live, the Federalist Papers are worth reading because they give you an insight into what was going through the minds of those who formed what is so far the most durable and long-lasting democratic republic in, in history. Uh, a a consistent form of government that hasn't changed since 1776. It's rather remarkable. And uh, the fear is increased government power. Many years ago, when uh, the war of against smoking occurred and was being waged, one of the problems they ran into was that people did say, particularly Americans who were reared on the tradition of freedom, they very often retorted to government attempts to suppress smoking, stay out of my life, it's my business, it's not yours. And that was when they came up with the hoax of secondhand smoke. Who says it's a hoax? Uh, The EPA, by the way, the Environmental Protection Agency, 11 studies, plus numerous other studies, all of which showed that there is zero danger of any kind from being in a room with a smoker, let alone being out of doors with a smoker. Nonetheless, the myth of secondhand smoke was brought out to turn smoking into a public health issue. And they were then able to retort to smokers, what are you talking about? It's not your business. You are imperiling public health. And that was really the technique by means of which smokers were turned into the equivalent of child molesters, certainly in the United States of America, where when you light up a cigarette or a cigar, you are glared at by people in, uh, in any public zone public arena. Public health is very dangerous. For instance, using the tool, and this is more than just a tool, this is a machete that can really hack away at freedom. The tool or the machete of public health should be used to stop the sport of mountain climbing. Do you have any idea of how many people die in mountain climbing accidents? They should be stopped. Nobody should be allowed to go mountain climbing. It should be regulated. 
And that's what many people already do believe. Yes. Any other dangerous sport, stop it immediately. You are imperiling public health. And you might say, well, leave me alone. It's my life. And for me, the high I get from bungee jumping or paragliding or mountain climbing is more important to me than simply, in other words, I'm willing to risk my life because it means a lot to me. And there are people who scuba dive and there are people who do all kinds of things that would impact your life insurance rates. That's why life insurance policies, when they're being written, do ask whether you're doing those kinds of things. And uh, this tendency of people, uh, particularly men, by an enormous margin, it's overwhelmingly men, to engage in uh, risky sports, extreme sports is really one of the very persuasive proofs that to human beings, unlike to animals, physical survival is not the only thing that matters. My father, who was also my teacher of ancient Jewish wisdom, used to sometimes joke, and I don't know if he meant it entirely as a joke, I suspect not, but he used to say, better a soul without a body than a body without a soul. Meaning, in other words, that for we human beings, uh, physical survival is not the only thing that matters, and that uh, there's a certain spiritual high that people get, and it is a spiritual high, right? There's, there's no chimpanzee on earth that could ever understand why anybody would choose to jump out of a perfectly serviceable airplane with a parachute strapped to his back. But uh, I do understand it. It's not something that I want to do, but I absolutely do get it. And this shows that human beings do care about more than merely physical survival. Feeding our souls, nourishing our spirits, apparently really counts for something. And uh, while we're on extreme sports, I will just say that not only do extreme sports show that for human beings there is more that counts than mere physical survival, but it also accentuates one of the differences between men and women. It's not an accident, it's not a coincidence that extreme sports are practiced far more by men than by women. Women are generally far more down to earth than men are. In young couples, young married couples that I counsel, and uh, I love counseling uh, married couples during the first seven years of their marriage, particularly earlier if possible. I like working with couples even earlier within the first two or three or four years of marriage because those are the times when one can really get certain things worked out, certain patterns of communication, patterns of behavior, um, ways of managing the marriage. That's the time that those things can be done. 
I must tell you something I get that is heartbreaking to me. I get it in both comments on the website. You know that if you go to our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, you know that uh, you can read um, not only the current issue of Thought Tools or of Susan's Musings or of Ask the Rabbi, but you can also go back and not only look at older um, issues that have cropped up, but you can even search and after each one, you'll find the comments uh, that people have written in and usually responses from Susan Lappin or from me. And um, both there and in also emails sent to me personally at our website, one of the most heartbreaking things I see, and it is with recurring regularity, is where were you when I was 25? Or some variation of that. I wish I had a rabbi like you when I was younger. And and that's something that I hear a great deal. And and by the way, it will come as no shock to you if I tell you that uh, with more frequency than I would wish, I say to myself, I wish I knew what I know now when I was 20 or 21 or 22 or 16 or 18. Uh, I wish but um, at least I was fortunate enough to be given this material uh, when I was still uh, relatively young. But for many people, uh, it doesn't happen, and and I get these responses from people very, uh, very saddening, but I really, I totally get it. People say, how could I have done what I did when I was 20 or 25 or 35 how come I didn't realize these things? Well, one doesn't, because these things do not come from intelligence. They don't come from education. They don't come genetically. They only come from studying and learning, in my opinion, ancient Jewish wisdom. I don't deny that they can be obtained also from certain other areas, most notably, in my view, uh, certain parts of English literature. I think that there are works that one can read that provide enormous insight into how the world really works. Uh, I mean, I, I could list off authors, but perhaps I'll do that for another show. I won't do that now. The point I wanted to make was that working with young couples, one of the issues that crops up very frequently and, and always has is that the husband is dreaming of some kind of entrepreneurial venture. Meanwhile, he has a job, and he's working at it, but his heart and soul are not in it. His heart and soul are in the time he puts in in the garage working on an invention, or trying to write software, or trying to create a small business on the side. And very often, that is disturbing and even frustrating and worrying to his young wife because she just wants to know that they're secure. And she's saying to herself, you know, if he's not putting his energy into his job, then, you know, who knows? Maybe he'll get fired. He won't have a job. Meanwhile, I don't know if his dream is ever going to come to pass. Maybe it's just a dream, even though he is sure because that's how entrepreneurs work. We are always sure 
that our idea is going to work. If we didn't have that confidence, we wouldn't try it. And one of the things that distinguishes entrepreneurs is when the idea doesn't work, they don't get demoralized. They don't get depressed. They allow themselves a half an hour of grieving and they're on to the next plan and they're on to correcting the flaws in the last one. But nonetheless, this is a very understandable response and it's something I get from many of the young couples I counsel, that the, the woman quite rightly says, I need security. I need to know we don't have to worry about uh, the, the bills. I don't, we, we don't have to worry about paying the rent. And the husband is saying, don't worry. There's nothing to worry about. Everything is fine. And what's more, I've got this great plan. We're not, not going to have to worry. This is really going to... And, and she loves him and she has faith in him, but not completely because it is part of a feminine woman's nature to want to make sure that the nest is secure. And she's quite right. And so the challenge of the husband in those circumstances is to be very, very alert and very aware and very sensitive to his wife's very legitimate concerns. He shouldn't say, oh, she has no faith in me. He shouldn't say she doesn't understand what I'm doing. She has no interest in in seeing the plan that I'm working on. None of that is relevant. All that's relevant is that she is absolutely entitled and correct to seek security, to want to know that the security is there. And so the challenge for the married entrepreneur is twofold. Number one, succeed at your enterprise. Number two, make sure that your wife has good reason to feel secure. Whatever that is, whether it's making sure that your day job continues to thrive and continues to supply the necessities, or whether it is making sure that there is uh, some kind of plan B, or whether it is reassuring her that this is not going to be endless years after years of worry, but that there is a timeline and there is a deadline and that you fully are realistic, that you fully accept the possibility that this might fail and that if it does, here's plan B. We still don't have to worry. Uh, When one is a married man, one can no longer skate down the razor blade of life. You do have an additional responsibility of making sure that your wife feels secure. And this isn't just an economic issue. It's an emotional issue as well. But it is part of the responsibilities of being a happy warrior. And so uh, it's very understandable. It's, if you like, it's back to the extreme sports. Being an entrepreneur is like engaging in extreme sports. And I know that it worries the feminist-leaning culture in so many countries that there are much fewer, far fewer women entrepreneurs than men. And there is a very good reason for it. It's not oppression. It's not sexism. It's not bigotry. It's that generally speaking, it is a quality of femininity to not want to take those risks. Very natural, 
very normal. And uh, it's something that we all, particularly uh, the males among us, need to really understand. Now, for regular listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, you know that I've spoken extensively over the last few months about the dangers of the disease that I call expertitis, and that is trusting what the experts say in general and structuring your critical life decisions around what the experts say. Because right now in the culture, there is a disproportionate reliance on experts or on studies or on the way we deify the credentialed. Do you know that he is a professor of economics? This reminds me of Stephanie Kelton, who's a professor of economics at uh, State University of New York in Binghamton. And uh, she was an advisor to the Bernie Sanders campaign, I believe. But what she teaches at the University of Binghamton is called modern monetary theory. And Professor Stephanie Kelton teaches that government can spend as much money as it wishes on anything because, hey, didn't you know the government has the right and the power to print money? And they can go ahead and print as much as they like. But when we speak about they printing money, we speak of it in derogatory and denigrating terms because we understand the huge peril that comes from printing money, devaluing the currency that everybody holds. When the government prints money, it essentially tells me not only to avoid saving, not only to go ahead and spend everything I've got because tomorrow it's going to be worth less, but I should go ahead and borrow as much as I can because I'll be paying it back with cheap and devalued dollars. Very bad for a society. But nonetheless, and only recently, I was talking to somebody who was active in the Bush administration, and uh, he was telling me um, of, you know, what a wonderful professor is Stephanie Kelton. But she isn't. She is inculcating into young minds damaging, destructive, and above all, false ideas. And so nonetheless, we have a culture in which the anointed credentialed are regarded as uh, infallible sources of information, and uh, we we speak all the time. You know, why won't the president listen to the experts, uh, or we should listen to what the scientists say? So um, I was discussing this with my dentist today. A, a remarkable man who's not only an excellent dentist, uh, but also a very smart and astute business professional, because uh, he is not just running his dental practice, he is also investing in real estate, little by little, small amounts at a time, but gradually he will be acquiring a real estate portfolio, which is wonderful buys a house here, fixes it up and rents it, buys another house, fixes it up and rents it, takes out a loan on it and buys a third house, fixes up and rents it. And little by little, he's going to get to a situation where he is making money while he sleeps. 
And that's not only good for him economically, but it's good for him maritally as well. Because a wife that feels secure is a totally different kind of wife from one who feels scared and nervous. And we were discussing uh, the, this danger of public health. And, um, and here is the approach that he took which I thought was it was excellent for you know for a, a young married man, excellent. He said, "Look, um, when I decide to uh, put up a building, he said, if I decide to build a house, I'm going to get a, an architect. I'm going to get engineers. I'm going to get soil engineers. I'm going to get electrical contractors, and I'm going to listen to the advice of the person I select." So if the soil engineer tells me, look, this is soft sand here, uh, we need to extend the footings by another 18 inches, then he says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And if the electrical contractor says, we need to run uh, an additional circuit because in this neighborhood, people use a lot of air conditioning. So we want to be able to run 220 volts, not, 100, not only 110 volts. I'm going to listen to that as well. But what happens if my architect says to me, um, you know, I don't think that you should be putting up a house. I think you should be investing in the stock market or his... Uh, uh, air conditioning and uh, heating and, and vacuum contractor says, you know, this is a, a nice house to build here, but I think you should do it somewhere else. And he names another location. He says, look, these guys are moving outside their areas of expertise, and they are now talking about issues of value, values. He doesn't know what my plans are for my children. He doesn't know what my financial plans are. He doesn't know my affinity for certain geographical areas. He doesn't even know about my relationship with my wife and the reason I may choose to do so. He doesn't know any of that. He shouldn't be talking about that. And even if he does, I certainly have no business listening. In other words, in the area of medicine, you should speak to a doctor. You should speak to several doctors. But, you know, let's imagine there is a, um, I don't know, some kind of elective surgery you're contemplating. And you speak to the doctor, and the, the doctor says, well, you know, here's what we can do, here's what it'll cost, here are the risks, etc., etc. And then the doctor says, and by the way, I, I don't really think you should do that. You could spend your money better by having a tummy tuck or a whatever it is. Now you have to say to yourself, this doctor has moved outside his usefulness to me because the value judgment is one that only I am qualified to make because nobody cares about me, my family, and my money more than I do. And so being aware of where the boundaries are of professional expertise is tremendously important. And the area of public health is quite different from medicine. It shouldn't be part of a medical discussion. And the reason is something that I said in my, 
I did two early podcasts at the beginning of the coronavirus affair. And uh, everything I said there, I'm very pleased. I've gone back and listened, and I was right on everything. Not that I'm a prophet, but I deploy ancient Jewish wisdom. And I said at the very outset that the destroying of the economy, even the harming, the jeopardizing of the economy, um, is also a health issue. You've got to pay attention to that as well. But you see, an economist looks only at economic issues as well he should. That's what he's been trained to do. That's his life. And a doctor looks at the medical issues just as he ought to. But public health goes way beyond medicine and way beyond economics. It's a lot of things, many, many things. And so the idea that doctors are making pronouncements about public health, not a good idea at all. That shouldn't be happening. No, it shouldn't. Not at all. You see, medicine is a science, and it can provide factual answers or sometimes guesses or estimates. But like any science, it deals only with provable, demonstrable, physical realities. It has nothing whatsoever to say about values. And when we make our life decisions having to do with our families, having to do with our finances, having to do with our friends, having to do with our faith, those decisions are based partially on facts, but very often they are also based on values. And that is exactly why there is such variety in life. Because if we only made decisions on scientific facts, then all our lives would be identical. All of us, every citizen of every country and every part of the world, would all make exactly the same decisions. Because if we confined ourselves to scientific facts, those scientific facts are true for everybody. Now, you may be on the cutting edge of certain scientific facts uh, regarding the coronavirus at the time I am taping this show. Much is not yet known. Much is not yet understood. Uh, There are also other areas that claim to be science, but are not. Those include climate change. They include discussions on evolution. And the reason I say that it is not a science is because science is something which can be proven or disproven. But speculation or guesses or estimates or even saying there is no other way it could have happened, that isn't science. Now you're in the area of belief and the area of values. But the reason that every human being is unique is not because of scientific facts. It's not even because we all have different bodies. It's only because we have different values. And it is a dreadful mistake of the most severe magnitude imaginable to base your life only on science. Your life is based on values. You need to recognize that and you need to clarify what those values really are because they impact how you will interpret 
scientific rulings and how you will deploy those decisions and how, excuse me, not decisions, how you will deploy those facts, those scientific data in your life. And that's one of the reasons, that, you know, it's just very much on my mind because I've been speaking over uh, the internet to a number of young couples. And, uh, and again, it is extraordinary how many young couples embark on marriage without establishing what the values of the marriage are going to be. And very often it falls to me, and I'm, I'm happy to do it, but it needs to be done. You have to sit down and you have to discuss. Here are your values. Here are my values. And now let's f decide what the marriage values are going to be, because that is a third party, if you like. There is you and there is me. We both exist independently. We, we both have our independent reality. And, and that, by the way, is just one of the reasons I've spoken about in the past, and I repeat it again now, is that there are private zones for both husband and wife in a marriage. And what is a private zone? Well, um, bathroom usage, for instance. Some couples mistakenly regard it as a sign of their closeness that bathroom functions are conducted as if it was an army barracks. There was a period, thank goodness it's vanished now, but there was a period that uh, architectural magazines were crowing with delight about this new trend of having open bathrooms connected to the bedroom, no walls. And this shows what modern couples are like. There is no embarrassment about natural functions, etc., etc., etc. You know the whole line. Uh, it is all hoax, fake, and false, uh, in addition to being absolutely stupid, which is probably even worse. But, um, but yes, uh, husband and wife do each exist as real and independent entities. However, far more important than that is the third entity, called the marriage. It doesn't subsume them entirely, but it does become the most important part of their matrix of existence. And uh, I've explained to, to couples that uh, I work with, again, that uh, the marriage is actually more important than anything else. Yes, uh, if you lose your job, you can recover from that. But if you lose your marriage, there's no real recovery. You only have one shot at a first marriage. And that's not to denigrate second marriages or even third marriages. Uh, I, I have a number of close friends who have built quite wonderful and durable second marriages after bad mistakes the first time around. It's a shame for that to have to happen. And it doesn't need to happen. The emphasis is on values. So, the science is not unimportant, and I speak to you as somebody who worked as an electronics engineer for the Dutch giant Philips Electronics, and um, I, I, I certainly know and understand uh, the science. I am in the process of teaching uh, calculus to a young man who is self-schooling, who happens to be closely related to me. And, um, and, and I, I love and I value and I appreciate science. I understand what it is, though. And above all, 
I understand its limitations, and I know that you do too. But uh, a very real danger today is the growing importance of public health. And uh, just today I was asked by somebody what I think would be the lasting results of the coronavirus. And uh, I think it is the danger of expanded government. I think that in, in many countries, not just the United States, uh, the, the way of expanding government through the call to public health, I think, is very disturbing. And the reason is because there is no limit to it. I cannot think of a single arena in which I could definitively state, this has nothing to do with public health. Um, it's not only things like smoking, but as I said, it's going to be usage of your car. It's going to even be usage of power. I don't know about you, but where I live, we get a, a most insulting monthly report from our power company. Uh, and this is, they mail it out, right? Wasting paper. Do you know how many trees had to be torn down to produce all the paper? They send out once a month, not the bill, right? The bill I deal with electronically. The paper is the most extraordinary thing. Um, if it wasn't that I suspect many of you get the same thing, I'd actually want to sort of put it online so you can see it. But it's got three graphs and it says energy usage of your most energy efficient neighbors, you know, and it's a low usage, energy usage of the average of your neighborhood, and that's a little higher, and then it's your energy usage. You are using 122% more energy than the average of your neighbors. Like, what, what's the next thing? Nazis knocking on the front door? Well, wait a second. This is outrageous, right? It's comical. It's not your business. I pay my electricity bill. I pay my gas bill. What's it your business how much I use? What's the next thing? Somebody's going to knock on my door and want to inform me of how much coffee I'm drinking? Well, yeah. If public health is the cause of the day, if public health can make freedom-loving Americans accept the most, most outrageous intrusions into their lives and can accept the thoroughly destructive damage being inflicted on a vibrant and healthy economy, all of that in the name of public health, well, then there's no limit. There are parts of the country, I don't believe it's everywhere, but there are parts of the country where pediatricians are not only empowered but encouraged to ask children whether their parents own firearms. Excuse me? Well, yes, it's a public health matter. You see, what worries me, public health encompasses everything, and it seems to be something that can persuade even the most freedom-loving citizens to forego those freedoms because it's the interests of public health. And so, it has been proven during the corona crisis that in many parts of the country, governors and governments have successfully persuaded citizens to snitch and rat on their neighbors. That's very disturbing. This is pure socialism. This is what used to take place in the old Soviet Union. 
I don't know about China. I don't know about Cuba. But I do know that in the early days of the state of Israel, and thank God that country has moved so far beyond these painful days. But in the early days, when uh, Israel was essentially destined to be a socialist paradise, which is why Russia was among the first countries in the world to recognize the new state of Israel in May 1948, because it was going to be a socialist paradise, um, one of the things they did was they encouraged children to tell the authorities if their parents had friends who were associated with the opposition party. That's how far it goes. It, I mean, I laugh at it, you know, just because it's a bad nightmare. It's a memory. But, uh, but this is very nerve-wracking. To turn citizens into snitches is part of the automatic mechanism of a socialist regime. I was very disturbed when uh, different states around the country put up signs. You remember the high-occupancy vehicle li lanes on the freeways? You were encouraged by big signs to call this number if you saw anybody driving in the high-occupancy lane that didn't have two or three people in their car. And one of the most insulting aspects of it was it, the sign said, be a hero, dial hero one, uh, whatever the phone number was, but it started with H-E-R-O on, on your keypad, and report um, non-users non who shouldn't be using the HOV lanes. I was very disturbed by that. I would much rather have people who shouldn't be driving on the lanes driving there, and I'm fine with uh, the um, uh, traffic police um, catching those people and ticketing them, that's all fine. But to turn citizens into snitches is incredibly destructive to a society. And yet there have been municipalities around the country in which citizens have been encouraged to call the authorities if they notice any people outside not social distancing or if they see people in a park. And the scary thing to me has been how quickly Americans... Now, in other countries, this may be a bit different, where there's a different culture. But in America, this always flew against the tradition of freedom and independence and of minding your own business. And yet, the government has succeeded in persuading American citizens to pick up the phone and report their neighbors... There have been outbursts of incredibly impolite behavior by people who feel other people are not wearing sufficiently uh, protective face gear, masks and gloves, and people violate normal standards of interpersonal conduct by yelling and screaming and getting outrageous and getting in people's faces. That's right, public health. And as soon as you enlist people's fears about public health, apparently you can actually get them to do pretty much anything. And that is what I find alarming. And uh, it's what I find to be the most worrying uh, prospect of what follows as a sequel to the corona uh, panic and the corona hysteria. 
what happens when uh, tax increases are announced? State level, city level, county level. What happens when tax increases are announced? And the rationale is this is needed for public health. I fear that the normal reactions of American citizens, which ordinarily would tend to be very skeptical of demands for tax increases, would be quietened and suppressed in the interests of public health. And so these are the things that I find disturbing right now. And I'm sure that there are many things that have concerned you as well. I mean, after all, you know, when, when people are frightened, anything can happen. And uh, people can be stampeded by fear. People can be persuaded to act in ways that they would ordinarily be ashamed of when fear is the motivator. And uh, I know that there were people who were extremely concerned at the prospect of urban rioting as part of the coronavirus. Uh, why that hasn't happened uh, to, to any extent at all uh, probably has to do with the fact that most of the rioting in America's history going back to the 1960s, I know, I know the history goes back earlier, but uh, to my awareness, it's usually in the summertime, um, not in the January, February, March period when the coronavirus was at its strongest. Secondly, um, an ever-increasing number of people get their paycheck from government. That number has continued to climb precipitously since 1960, uh, to the point today where about six out of ten of the people you look at on the bus or on the train, or six of the ten people in cars around you on the freeway, work for government at one level or another. And one of the things that uh, has been happening during the coronavirus in the United States of America is that while the Korean couple who work from early in the morning to late at night running their little dry cleaner have been suffering incredibly, what do I mean? Well, after all, the Hertz company is contemplating declaring bankruptcy. Right Now, by the time you hear this, they may well have declared bankruptcy. But why are they declaring bankruptcy? Because they don't have the money to pay for the leases on all the cars they buy. Now, isn't it extraordinary to you that a huge international company like Hertz doesn't have enough cash on hand in order to cover a few months of low earnings or no earnings? How can that be, right? Cash on hand is a line item in a, in a financial statement. And we look for that. It's, it's something good to have. Now, I understand, obviously, that uh, we're living in an economy that for the last few decades has been moving to what's called a just-in-time model. Uh, we don't keep huge inventories of components at an assembly plant. They arrive just when they're needed, and this applies to uh, airplanes or cars or anything else at all, and also a financial management of companies very often work in the same way because cash on hand isn't making money and uh, but still three months worth come on 
Really? I mean, that's serious stuff. And that's true for individuals and even more so for companies. I mean, not to have three months of, of cash on hand to, to, three, to keep operations going for three. Come on, really? And here, my dry cleaner run by this lovely uh, Korean couple who immigrated here many, many years ago. They work from early morning to late at night. They never lose a shirt. They're meticulous. They notice if if something if if, if a jacket has a loose button, they they mention it when I bring it in. They ask if it li- would like if I'd like it to be repaired. I mean, you can hear I'm enthusiastic about them. Do you think they have three months of cash on hand? Of course not. They are struggling, and the fact that I am zealously um, sending in clothes for cleaning that don't even need it, just because I want to. I want them to survive. I want them to be okay. They're valuable to me. But government employees, and God bless you all government employees, but you know as well as I do, you haven't missed a paycheck since this all started. You're getting everything that you were getting all along. And so anybody and growing numbers work for the government, I think for a start that means fewer people out there with reason to uh, to to riot um, and so it's not only the weather and it's also that the government has been very quick and very forthcoming on um, various kinds of payments and loans and uh, forbearances uh, to make it easier for people which is all very nice but it shouldn't have been necessary in the first place As I said, when I first started speaking on this show about the coronavirus, there was not any proven reason to damage the economy and to force a nationwide shutdown of the kind that we're seeing. I'm not going to again go into the the details I covered then, but um, I, I will just say that the number of coronavirus deaths or the deaths that are being attributed to coronavirus, now over 60,000, is simply not true. Uh, I'm sure you are all aware that Medicare pays more money for coronavirus cases than for regular. You are all aware that the Center for Disease Control has actually instructed healthcare providers, doctors, hospitals, and so on, to attribute deaths to coronavirus, even unless there is evidence to the contrary. Um, So I don't for one moment accept that the true number of deaths is indeed 60,000. And by the way, 60,000 is a big enough number that if it were true, we should be able to look at American deaths. And, And I've discussed this in the past. We have very good statistical information on how many Americans on average die every day, every week, every month from all causes, everything. And it's remarkably consistent, as you would imagine, with 330 million people statistics count when the numbers are very large so you would expect that the three months of january february march of 2020 should have 60,000 extra additional deaths over the three months of october november december right but they don't why would that be well because the overwhelming majority of those deaths are deaths among vulnerable people the elderly Have you noticed the incredibly high percentage of coronavirus deaths in old-aged homes and care facilities and hospitals? Well, how many 25-year-olds do you know living in an elder care facility? 
So I don't want to beat a dead horse here. For those of you who are interested, there is enough information you can gather without me, and you will see for yourself that that number is hugely inflated. You might ask, well, how would, why would anybody inflate the numbers? What is there to gain? Who could possibly do such a thing? And the answer is money and politics. If there is a possibility of making sure that President Donald Trump in November 2020 ends up running against the coronavirus instead of against Joe Biden, well, then that's a big reason to raise the number of deaths. And as far as the money is concerned, well, it's all a matter of public health, you see. And so considerably more money is being allocated by Congress to all kinds of organizations like the Center for Disease Control, because this is a pandemic. It's a public health issue. Money. Who cares about money at a time like this? Yes, there is plenty of reasons, very good reasons to accentuate and exaggerate the number of deaths. Of course, it's, it's very understandable. Makes all the sense in the world. So now, do I really want to leave you on, on such a, a morbid and disturbing note? Uh, the, the threat that the concept of public health poses to people in free countries all around the world. The extent to which malevolent forces in politics and government will exploit the coronavirus in order to benefit themselves and their organizations. This is all self-evident. You barely need me. You don't need me to tell you any of this. And so why would I want to leave you on such a note? I don't want to leave you on such a note. So let's be cheerful. The most cheerful thing is if I can give you an antidote. And uh, I'm about to give you an antidote. It's simple, but not easy. The antidote is family and finance. That's right. Let me explain. If you are alone and without financial resources, then this is a very terrifying and very disturbing period because your first recourse is government assistance on every level and your recourse for loneliness is, I don't know what, it's a terrible thing. Loneliness is an absolutely dreadful scourge. But if you don't have family and you don't have financial resources, this is a tough time. The truth is that whatever the threat may be, no matter what lies beneath the challenging times that we may have endured or may be enduring or may in the future endure, those challenges are most easily surmounted and those trials and tribulations are most easily triumphed over if you have family and if you have financial resources. Now, I've spoken enough about how important it is to build a family. Nothing more important. And many, many people are discovering that now as these lock-in policies are making people indeed fall back on their marriages and on their families. And so, yes, if you haven't yet done so, 
Make sure that building a family is paramount in your value system. And secondly, and just as importantly, if you haven't yet done so, make sure that now is the time you are going to take seriously the entire question of increasing your revenue. That is the thing to be doing now, to make sure you are now taking the steps to increase your money-making ability in order to build enough income that you can invest in adventures and entrepreneurial activities, whether it's real estate or any one of a hundred other things that you are going to get good at and build up passive income that supplies your bank account even while you're asleep. These are really important things, really important. Let me read to you a letter which you could actually read for yourself on our website. Over at our website at rabbidaniellappin.com, you will see a tab called Susan's Musings. And uh, those are the uncensored thoughts and ideas of Susan Lappin. And um, they generate um, very extensive response. They get more comments than anything else we do on our website, um, partially because Susan speaks directly from the heart. And her most recent one, the current one right now, is entitled Vaccine Development, Seeking Poets. Now, you might well wonder, what has poetry got to do with vaccine development? But to find out the answer to that, you'll have to go to RabbiDanielLappin.com and go to Susan's Musings, and you'll read a very nice piece in which she quotes me, I should mention. But um, uh, one of the comments is from a gentleman called Henry, and I want to read it to you. Here he writes, where do I even start? Sometime after receiving a BA with a double major in history and English, I discovered I would need something more if I wanted a real job. I went back to engineering college, earned a bachelor's in mechanical engineering. This allowed me to spend the next 27 years of my life working at a Department of Defense Research Lab. I also picked up a master's in technical management along the way. I thought I was a pretty smart guy until I ran into calculus. <laughs> and I laugh because uh, I love calculus, but I understand very much what he says. So I thought I was a pretty smart guy until I ran into calculus. To be honest, I never understood some of those derivations. So I just memorized them. Unfortunately, almost none of my co-workers at the factories where I toiled for nine years would have lasted one semester in engineering school. Although I graduated with a high GPA, it darn near killed me. I worked harder during those years than any time before or since in my life. During this time, I was in my early 30s, married and paying for everything that wasn't covered by scholarship money. I was motivated. If someone is smart enough and disciplined enough to get through calculus and one of the hard sciences, they are likely to take a job that is more rewarding than teaching in a public school, where teachers are also expected to be social workers and the school itself is expected to take the place of parents, even to the point of providing food to the students. What teachers don't know, they can't teach, whether we are talking about mathematics or the meaning of compound interest in personal finance. 
but it is worse than that. For a number of years, I volunteered as a math tutor in our local high school. My job was getting juniors and seniors ready to pass the state math exam that was required for graduation. Some of these young people didn't know their multiplication and division tables that we learned in the third grade. I noticed the outcome for these students was strongly correlated to the determination of their parents. I remember one mother who basically offered her son a choice of death or graduation. Just kidding. But even though the mother was not much better educated than her boy, she was not going to tolerate failure. He graduated and started a successful business cutting down bushes and trees growing under power lines as a contractor for the power companies in the area. I think it comes down to this. If a parent values education and pushes their children towards success while modeling the kind of behavior that brings success, there is a high probability the child will succeed. If the parents depend on anything or everyone to take that primary responsibility off their shoulders, the odds against that child ever reaching their potential is pretty frightening. And I answered and I said, Dear Henry, your letter and indeed your life is a powerful testament to what Susan Lappin and I have always taught. Any institution graduating a young man with knowledge only of English and history is committing an act of sabotage against him, as you happily discovered in time. However, while that English degree was useless to you in your legitimate quest to be able to earn a living, it has stood you in good stead. You have written us an utterly cogent and erudite letter on complex topics, a feat quite beyond the English composition abilities of most college graduates, let alone high school seniors. I'm going to copy your letter to show to one of our self-schooling grandsons who will completely get your point and agree with it. He's just starting calculus under my tutelage and writes very well too. I hope all continues well for you. That's the point that I am trying to make. Now is the time, as valuable and as lovely as history and English are, now is the time to make sure you can actually earn a living. And if you are listening to this in your 20s instead of your 50s, so much the better. And if you're listening in your teens, so much the better. And if you are listening in your 50s or 60s or 70s, it's not too late. It may be too late to do certain things, but it isn't too late to do something. And now really is the time to totally change your outlook towards money and finance and change your abilities in those areas. It means expanding your mind. It expands going outside. It means going out of your box. It means leaving your cocoon of comfort. And one of the resources that I prepared specially for this situation, if you or someone you care about is in it, is something that we call the Financial Prosperity Collection. That's right. The Financial Prosperity Collection is 10 videos, and you can either buy them by having us ship you a little USB drive that you pop into the side of your computer, and then you get to watch the 10 videos, uh, or you can even download them as as 10 mp4 files and that way you can get started on that immediately so i i want to encourage you to be open to the idea that not producing your financial potential is a mental problem it's not because of anything lacking in you intrinsically 
It's not because of anything that your parents did to you. Please believe me. It certainly has something to do with mistakes you've made in the past. But that's true for all of us. And it isn't too late to make a change. Doesn't mean you can correct all those mistakes. Time moves on. Not everything can be said it's not too late. Some things it is. But it's not too late to make a change. It's not too late to improve. It never is. And so working your way gradually through those 10 um, video lessons, that would be a one good way to do it. Uh, you may have other ways of doing it. It's possible you are already embarked on a concept that you just haven't devoted enough energy to and enough time to. Well, what I would suggest you start off doing is do a time assessment of your life. How much of your hours every week go to non-productive activity? By that I mean time not devoted to your five F's. And you will notice that I'm adding a fifth one. Usually I say the four F's, but I'm adding a fifth one. What are the five F's? I'm looking for time in your life that you are not devoting to faith, to family, to finance, to friends, and to fitness, taking care of yourself physically. Anytime you're not devoting to any of those things, and that, by the way, includes time that goes on amusement and entertainment. There is no need for that. Seriously. Sometimes people plonk themselves down in front of the TV and, you know what, I just need to relax. No, you don't. You don't need to relax. You know when there's time to relax? After 120 years, when you meet your maker. He'll probably say even then, no time for relaxation, but I do not have authoritative or reliable information on that. But what I do know authoritatively and reliably is remove relaxation from your life. And if you devote all of that time to things that are productive, you will truly be astounded at the results. And maybe for a start, it is devoting yourself to absorbing those 10 lessons in my financial prosperity collection. Maybe it isn't. Maybe, maybe you have other avenues, and that's fine. That's fine. I want you to prosper. I really, really do, in the same way that I want me to prosper. And I work on that, and I want you to work on that, and to take it very, very seriously. Because i got to tell you, that uh, when the invasion of the Nazis hit one country after another in the middle of the 20th century, many times, not always, but many times, those people who got out of an invaded and occupied Holland and who got out of invaded and occupied Poland and many of the Jews who knew they were headed for death and destruction those who got out had a few dollars in their pockets. And they always kept cash on hand, by the way. That's right. Sometimes it was in the form of valuables like gold and jewelry. Other times it was in the form of uh, investments of certain kinds, although real estate investments were seized by the Germans. Um, things that were not movable were seized. And I'm not suggesting that uh, invasion is imminent and that you must have 
uh, huge amounts of cash on hand. I'm not suggesting that. Obviously, uh, enough cash on hand for a certain period of time, and you have to decide that for yourself, obviously is essential. But I am saying that having financial resources is very, very important. And if this coronavirus hasn't driven that home yet, then I hope that this show will. And that, my friends, brings us about as far as we're going to go. I remind you of the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Take a look at Susan's musings about vaccines and poetry. <laughs> I'm serious. It, it was beautiful. Um, I'm very, obviously, I'm proud of her. And, uh, and um, you'll enjoy that. You'll also be able to read more about the Financial Prosperity Collection, those 10 video lessons where I teach the topic I've been talking about, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, it's also a place to write to me, and as as you know, I cherish the letters I receive very much, and uh, it's also a place you can send questions to in on the Ask the Rabbi page. Uh, the current Ask the Rabbi, by the way, is very interesting and very painful. Um, it's from a woman who writes about the fact that her husband lost his job and that he's sitting around and uh, watching television and not doing anything, and he's not even helping around the house, and she's taking care of everything, and she's got a job. And um, uh, Susan Lappin and I prayed on this one, and we worked on it for a long time. We also discerned certain things in the wording of her letter that gave us clues to what may really be going on there. And so although we don't know the person who wrote to us, we've never met her, all we have to go on is the question that she wrote to us, nonetheless, uh, we devoted considerable effort to the answer, which was, I think, surprising to many people. And in fact, many of the comments you can read after that Ask the Rabbi on our website, you will see that many people not only had thoughts of their own, but many were struck by some of the highlights of our observations. So anyway, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. I am reluctant to say goodbye to you, but say goodbye to you I must until next week here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I am your rabbi, wishing you nothing but good times with your faith, with your friendships, with your family, with your finance, and with your physical fitness. That's right. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.